quite excellent episode number 69. Today's poem is titled The Bats, and it is a departure from some of our recent poems. This is another that comes from The New Yorker, the December 21st, 2020 edition this time, and from poet Mark Wunderlich. The poem is also part of his collection, God of Nothingness, Poems, published in 2021. Many of the poems we have explored have been pretty somber and serious, and this poem presents an opportunity to add a bit of play into our discussions of poetry. It is a fun poem and somewhat seasonally appropriate, because insects are often less available and also because existing in cold weather is just harder, bats can hibernate or travel south during the winter. Technically, the winter season ends in March, but I don't think Reno will be seeing its bats back anytime soon. Even in more temperate season, their return happens later in the year, closer to August, and from the looks of things, it may still be blizzarding then too, so who knows. The seasons are not the only reason this poem is appropriate. Bats are a protected species in Nevada, and Reno gets a fair number of them in the warmer months. The South McCarran Bridge that passes over the Truckee River in Sparks is often home to a colony of tens of thousands of bats, and because they're a protected species, when the bats move in, you either live with them or you move out. There's a fire station in Washoe Valley that has been hoshed to a colony a few times, forcing the firemen to abandon the station for a while while they roost. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Before we can explore our next poem, we must revisit the previous one that students explored. Whisk. It is read by me this time. Whisk by Anna Scotty. I told my grandmother I am afraid and she made that little wave, each plump finger brushing away my worries, just the way she'd brush crumbs from around the toaster tray, the way she'd sweep the dog's dry tracks from the trailer floor. Oh, now, it's not so bad here, she'd said. But I'm afraid that when I'm gone, no one will remember her, her dimpled knuckles, the way her mouth turned down at the corners in a sweet, prim frown. No one will put flowers on her grave, even... I don't do that now, but what I mean is, no one will intend to. I told my mother I'm afraid she'll die alone, and she laughed out loud. Let's hope that's the worst thing coming. I looked down at my own hands, nodded in the dog's fur, and saw that they were like my father's, blue-veined and broad, and I stroked my hair, my cheek, with the hand that is most like his, until the dog struggled to get down, until the kettle whistled. Then I sat alone at the kitchen table and stirred a cup of tea. The first thing I want to explore from students' responses is their consideration for familial concern and loss in the poem. A student writes that the speaker uses sad and discouraging phrases to convey the concern the speaker has toward her grandmother and mother. Another writes that the speaker is scared of what will happen to her grandmother's legacy when she's gone. And this idea of legacy, I think, is really interesting. There's another contribution from a student along these lines, and they write that the speaker hates to think that her mother will have died alone and that no one will put flowers on her grave with intention. Anyone can put a flower on a grave, but if you don't remember or connect the person in their life, then you are honoring them for dying, not for living. It's a really thoughtful approach. I like this. Another student writes that the grandmother herself refers to the scene as how it's not so bad here. But she doesn't mean the trailer that she'd sweep the dog's dry tracks from, but where she is now. Not there physically, but there for the author emotionally. Another student has an explanation that suggests that because the speaker is alone at the end and the grandmother has a grave, it seems that the mother may have died as well, 
They write that all the people she cared about in this story have died, and now she is alone. All of the author's fears have come true, and she is alone, only with the memories of her beloved grandma and mother to give her company. The student responded directly to this, writing that, I agree with you, the speaker is alone with the memories of her relatives. I want to add that her father seems to have also passed. The hand that is most like his suggests that she is holding on to his memories, too. Now, there are a lot of fine details in this poem that students wanted to explore. One writes that the prose poem Whisk by Anna Scotty is about the cumulative effect of ordinary moments and how they become impactful. One writes that when she talks about these actions performed by her grandmother, she may not be talking about these actions, but the way and the quality in which a grandmother did these actions is making her worried that her family will forget her. And the student seems to be suggesting that these small details of her grandmother's life will be lost. Another student notes that the intricate details help to establish the deep connection between the grandmother and the narrator and helps to show the impact of her loss. The student then points to descriptions of dimpled knuckles and sweet prim frown and writes that they relay how she noticed small endearing details about her grandmother that have deep meaning to her. Another says that the speaker uses visual imagery to help depict how she and her grandmother were close and how the speaker felt safe with the grandmother as each plump finger brushed away her worries. Another writes... The speaker uses visual and auditory imagery to narrate her feelings of missing her family, describing a stalling moment between the speaker and her grandmother. The speaker reveals she is afraid, and her grandmother's touch calming her as it could brush away her worries. This calming quality comes up a lot, with another student writing that the grandmother soothes the author, each plump finger brushing away her worries. The grandmother shows their bond by doing a simple motion that is able to make the author's worries go away. But it's not just the grandmother that is the focus, of course. A student says that Scotty isn't solely focused on just her grandmother, but rather her family as a whole. For example, she looks down at her hand, noting that it is most like her father's, and continues to display nostalgic feelings related to her family. However, this still supports another student's ideas of the speaker's realization of their own loneliness. Another responds that her detailed description of her hand is her coming to terms with the fact that she carries her loved ones in herself and therefore they cannot be forgotten, and she can never be truly alone. But not everyone agrees. A number of students thought that this poem explores the idea and the anxiety about possibly being forgotten. A student wrote that the speaker is truly worried about who will remember her grandma, her mom, and herself after they pass, that they could just be whisked away. Another writes that the poem flashed forward to where the poet sits in her house alone, possibly waiting for the same fate. Another notes that even though she cared deeply about her grandmother, she doesn't put flowers on her grave and worries that no one will put flowers on hers. And finally, a student says the poem establishes the feeling of regret for not taking flowers to her grandmother's grave and worries about becoming deserted and alone, then realizes she is alone at the kitchen table rather than her, in her grandmother's presence. Now, the presence of multiple family members within this poem, even if they may not be present in the narrative, in the setting of the space, was an important aspect of a few students' responses. One writes that Whisk, a poem by Anna Scotty, uses juxtaposition between her family to portray the fear of being forgotten. The juxtaposition between the three family members, as one is very worried about being forgotten, one doesn't mind all too much, and the other just doesn't care. Similarly, a student says that when the speaker expresses that she doesn't want her to die alone, her mother laughs, saying that she hopes that's the worst outcome. 
insinuating that there are much worse conditions to die under. Finally, I want to explore what students had to say about the conclusion of this poem, its ending. One writes that the speaker worries over her mother and father as well until the end of the poem when she is whisked back into reality by the sound of the kettle whistling. Another notes there's some irony here, and the speaker talks with their mother about dying alone, and ironically, at the end of the poem, ends up stirring their tea alone. The irony shows how the speaker may not have gotten anything of value from that conversation with her mother. But not everyone's quite so pessimistic, and a student responded directly to that last idea, writing that instead of having got nothing from their conversation with her mother, I think the ending mirrors her mother's sentiment of not feeling scared of being alone, as the last scene in which the speaker is alone sounds peaceful, and the only part of the poem free of doubt or fear. And along these lines, a student notes that the kettle whistling at the very end may convey how life moves on, even without the grandmother, maybe without the mother or the father. Whenever students talk about structure, I got to bring it up. And I had just one student who wanted to talk about uh, the prose structure of this poem. And they noted that the prose writing makes the poem feel less like a poem and more like a story that you're able to connect with. And I think there's something to this. I think when we remove the stanzaic structure that we assume is part of poetry, like a concrete essential part of poetry, the writing becomes more informal. It becomes almost colloquial. And not necessarily the words themselves, but there's something about prose writing that makes it feel like a that makes it feel like an anecdote, that makes it feel like a letter passed between friends, this kind of thing. So I think this idea of the prose format demystifying the poem into being more familiar and accessible, I think there's a lot to that. Our next poem is The Bats by Mark Wunderlich. The structure of this poem should be familiar, with its somewhat regular line lengths and stanzas. These are actually a special kind of stanza called a tercet. This is what you call stanzas that are three lines long. Some definitions will tell you that you need to be rhyming in these, but those definitions are wrong. I'm just going to tell you that. You do not have to use the term tercet here, and you can just as easily write about what is happening in the second or fourth stanzas. But if you're feeling poetically fancy, you can talk about the second tercet, or the sixth tercet. That term is right there for you. While the poem itself doesn't often have lines with clean and consistent rhymes at their end, these are rhymes called end rhymes, by the way, rhyming sounds are an interesting part of the poem. There are a few words like bats and gap that have the same rhymed vowel sound, but not quite the same consonant cluster at the end. And other interesting groups of sounds like how seem in line 17 is almost a combination of see them in line 16. These kinds of rhymes, where just the last consonant or just the last vowel rhyme, are called slant or near rhymes. There is even something called internal rhyme here, where words within the same line rhyme, like in line 10. And I just realized that the last seven lines all have a strong E sound in there somewhere. Maybe students can come up with some interesting ideas as to why these words and lines seem to be paired or linked together by sound. Why do the last seven lines all have that same sound in them, but the previous ones don't, necessarily? Should we group them together? In some way, do they share some logical or thematic idea? Anyway, there's lots of other ideas to explore too. Lots of interesting imagery here. I spot visual, tactile, auditory, and kinetic. And there's even some onomatopoeia. 
Syntactic variety is great too, with some sentences stretching out across different stanzas, but with a few wildly short sentences mixed in there too. They are so short, they seem to almost work like punctuation, but what ideas are they emphasizing? I also want to point to the word hazard. This word is rarely used as a verb, and I just love it here. I'm not entirely sure why, even, but it just fits. feels good. Maybe someone could explore that. And as always, there is so much more that I haven't brought up. I hope you explore things that I have not considered. Oh, and if anyone decides to talk about or even quote that M dash that's in there, don't forget that we know how to write it correctly. On a Windows machine, hold down Alt and press 0151 on the number pad. Now, in the interest in imitating great art, our writing task for the week is to create sentence variety by writing sentences that have a significant difference in their sentence lengths. We've talked about creating variety before, such as avoiding repetition of our sentence openings. But sentence lengths are an important part of creating engaging, varied writing as well. To earn this point, I want you to include two different kinds of sentences in your response. One you already know about. It's the complex sentence. This is a sentence with a dependent and an independent clause. Dependent clauses start with subordinating conjunctions like because, however, although, and similar. I've provided a guide for you on the classroom post. An independent clause is just a simple sentence that can stand alone. Your complex sentence can start with a dependent clause or end with it. If you start with a dependent clause, you're probably going to need a comma between them. That's almost always the case. But the comma isn't necessarily needed if the dependent clause comes second. If the complex sentence is the first type of sentence you need to write, what's the second? Well, it's easy. It's called a telegraphic sentence. My last sentence was actually an example of one. A telegraphic sentence is a sentence of five words or fewer. These are simple, but effective. Shortened sentences allow us to make impossible-to-ignore statements that can make our ideas more clear. You wouldn't want an entire paragraph written with them, as this would feel mechanical and it's more appropriate for a much younger writer, but we also do not want sentences that are exclusively lengthy, which can become boring and unclear. Using a variety of sentence types helps focus our ideas and maintain the continued attention of our readers. For our secret passphrase, I want you to use the word environment. You can use this word to explore the inside spaces of the speaker's home or the larger region in which they live or maybe something else that feels appropriate. Modifications, of course, are encouraged. You can use environmental, for example. Here is The Bats by Mark Wonderlich. It is read by a longtime internet friend of mine, Tracy Tolbert. Saying long-term doesn't really do it justice, and actually, I first ran into Tracy in a community playing the Valve game Counter-Strike when it was in its original official release, probably around, what, update 1.3. That's about 20 years ago. I know this is a total aside, but it blows my mind to think about. Tracy is the perfect witchy person to provide this poem for us. Here she is, reading The Bats. I share my house with a colony of bats. They live in the roof peak. Enter through a gap. At dusk they fly out, dip into inverted arcs to catch what flutters or stings, what can only be hunted at night. Sunlight stops their flight, drives them into their hot chamber to rest and nest, troll faces pinched shut. I hear them scratch. In darkness they chop and hazard through the sky, around blue outlines of pines pitch up over the old Dutch house we share. They scare some, but not me. I see them for what they seem. Timid, wee, happy, or lucky, pinned to the roof beams, stitched up in their ammonia reek, and private as dreams. 
A paragraph responding to this prompt is due on the Friday that ends this week, and your two replies to other students are due the Wednesday after. Students, be sure to use the word environment in some form in your responses, as this is your secret passphrase. We definitely have a first-person narrator here, so use the speaker to describe them. Not the poet, not the author. We should never assume that the poet is the one speaking. For our written task, use a telegraphic and a complex sentence in your response. Don't forget to make use of our previous writing tasks for quality writing. Include a claim with a clear what and how. Provide a basic summary before you start exploring evidence. Use the poet's last name by itself once you've used their full name and consider the variety of your sentence beginnings. If you're using multiple quotes in a sentence, again, keep them short. Use brackets where needed. And we have line and stanza breaks here, so don't forget your punctuation. Remember to use a single forward slash to indicate a line break and a double forward slash to indicate a stanza break. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, want to provide a reading, or would like the class to direct their eyes toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 69 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent.